0: professor of law at the University of California, Davis. We'll be discussing your article, Women in m and which is forthcoming in the UC Irvine Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Afra, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me here, Andrew. I'm a big fan of the show and think that you are adding so much value in getting academic discourse to a wider audience. So I'm excited.
0: I appreciate that, and I'm excited to get this article out into the broader stream of things and to contribute this to the academic discourse. I wonder if before we talk about the meat and bones of your article, which focuses on the role of women in leadership in M&A, for listeners who aren't as familiar with the world of M&A mergers and acquisitions, could you introduce us to some of the key players in an M&A deal, particularly what is the role of the lawyers and the bankers? And in terms of their economic and social impact, just how big a deal are M&A deals?
1: Undertaking a large m and deal involves a lot of different actors, whether it's the corporation's board of directors or it's senior management, the CEO, the CFO... The head of business development, for example, as well as legal and financial advisors who play a really key role. There are a whole host of other advisors as well. What I really focus on in the article is really these, I would say, four institutional players in MA, partly because each of these players plays. A really significant role in the decision to move forward on an M&A deal. They're very involved in the everyday as well as the high-level decision-making for a transaction in planning for the deal in risk management issues with respect to the deal and valuation all the way through closing and post-closing. They work together very closely in all aspects of the deal-making for an M&A transaction. With respect to M&A and why it matters, M&A transactions are often the largest undertaking that a company does. They're a recurring feature of the business world, and they're a really significant aspect of economic activity. So if you look at 2020 data alone, worldwide M&A deals totaled $3.6 trillion. Large M&A deals are often transformational events for companies. So if that's selling company or the buying company, they're going to determine whether a well-known brand survives. Whether a company expands its business to new heights or new business lines. For listeners, think of, you know, Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods. They also determine whether a company dies, <laughs> where it goes, very closely by the financial press, which regularly profiles deals and deal makers. It's rare that you could open up, for example, the Wall Street Journal or the business section of the New York Times and not have many M&A deals discussed in one day. And law firms and investment banks have large practices that really work on M&A advisory work. And they're often touting their M&A prowess and expertise and also seeking to grow this area because M&A is often one of the most lucrative areas of practice for advisors.
0: Your article focuses on the role of women in these important outside advisory roles in the M&A process. And of course, I think this leads us to perhaps a conversation about the role of women and other senior corporate roles. For example, the role of women in the C-suite, the role and the place of women and the membership of women on boards. How does your article intersect with some of those issues around C-suite and board diversity and how does it perhaps differ? What contribution do you offer for that broader literature on diversity in the higher levels of corporate decision-making?
1: In the article, I first start out with really building upon the great work that a lot of other scholars have done, both in the law and in other fields as well, on the gender gap in leadership positions more generally within corporations, whether that is the gender gap with respect to the membership on the board, or whether it's the gender gap with respect to membership in the C-suite. And so I recount that literature some ways in the article to try and tie it into thinking about the broader ecosystem of everyone who is involved in MA. and In many ways, the gender gap in the C-suite and the boardroom and the gender gap amongst the lead advisors in MA are very much Interrelated, right? This is just a reflection of gender disparities and leadership position. But in some ways for the advisors, it's a little bit different because the pressure points are different. And I think for each of these institutions, the pressure points are different. So if you think about the sex diversity on boards, and I talk about it in the article, the level of diversity on boards has increased fairly significantly over the past decade. There's still work to be done, but there's been a lot of regulatory pressure. There has been an enormous amount of pressure from shareholders and stakeholders. And if you think about shareholders, particularly, particularly the big institutional investors, to try and add gender diversity on boards and more recently, racial diversity as well as diversity with respect to LGBTQ people. There's also been legislative effort on this front, whether that has been internationally in a lot of the European jurisdictions, which were first movers on the issue of board diversity, or now more domestically, for example, in the United States with respect to the legislation in states like California and Washington and a host of other states, as well as the recent NASDAQ rule that was passed. So with respect to board diversity, we've had some of this progress, partly because a combination of disclosure and quotas have worked to some extent. The movement on diversity has been, I think, more sluggish. If you look at the C-suite, there are not any jurisdictions that Mandate that a company must have a diverse C-suite. There has been, in general, much less disclosure on diversity in the C-suite by companies, although shareholders are beginning to try and advocate for additional disclosure and some companies are acquiescing to that. And with respect to advisors, the pressure has come from a variety of angles, but the pressure has been on very much on kind of an aggregate level. So a lot of the law firms, for example, now have aggregate data with respect to diversity of their lawyers more generally. Sometimes they have aggregate data with respect to diversity of partners. Rarely does anyone break those down in any kind of detail. The investment banks are much less transparent on this issue. There are some reports that look at the financial services sector more generally, but I would say those reports do not go even to the level of detail that we see from, for example, the National Association of Law Professionals (NALP) or from the American Bar Association with respect to the diversity of investment banks and certain groups within the financial services profession. And so that has meant that the progress on whether it's you know, gender diversity or other kinds of diversity amongst those advisors has been slower. And I think that unlike, in some ways, I talk about this in the paper, board diversity is easier. And for some companies, they've been able to expand the size of the board to respond to diversity mandates. The pressure and how you respond to that pressure and how you think about diversity outside of the board and the ability to add people from diverse backgrounds outside of the board, it's going to be significantly harder. And I don't think that there's that much of a stomach yet for any kind of quotas or mandates outside of the board.
0: This article is an empirical study. Could you walk us through some of your research questions and the methods that you use to tackle those questions?
1: I'd be happy to. There's a really rich literature on the question of the gender gap in the legal profession. And the empirical aspect of my paper really builds upon that literature. The literature shows that gender disparities in leadership at partner levels, for example, at law firms persisted. They've shifted somewhat, but they have persisted. This is work that has been done by a number of scholars, but also work that has been done by entities like the ABA that really actually have some terrific research that looks at law firms, law firm partnerships beyond the partnership level, the difference between equity partners and non-equity partners and so forth. But the one question I always had when looking at this literature is, how does the gap look when we dig down into specific practice groups or into specific fields? Because most of the study of the gender gap in the legal profession looks at partners for example on an aggregate level. And I was a practicing lawyer for a number of years. I worked as a corporate lawyer at a large Wall Street and Silicon Valley law firm for 7 years, and from my practice experience, it was very clear to me that when you would dig down and think about specific fields, and M&A is one of them, I rarely saw women as the lead partners on those types of major transactions. More often in I would say supporting practice groups, whether that was tax or employee benefits or environmental issues, partners that were important to the transaction being able to get done, but not the partners who were having you know almost daily contact with the investment bankers on the transaction or the CEO and the CFO in the C-suite. And they weren't often the partners that were presenting to the board and connecting with the board. And so one of the questions that I was really thinking about when I was thinking about leadership in M&A and gender disparities and leadership in M&A is I thought, if I'm looking at the board and then I'm looking at the C-suite, what I really want to look at are who are the lead corporate partners when it comes to the law firms. And I was curious about whether the gender disparities that I had witnessed and experienced until I left practice in 2007 had persisted. And to what extent they had persisted. And I also wanted to build on the great work that the ABA's Women in MA subcommittee had been doing because they had been doing a series of studies to try and determine the percentage of women entering MA practice and then the number that were becoming partners in MA practice, as well as trying to get data on number of women in law schools, for example, who were taking the classes and so forth. And I was trying to think through. Okay, how do I figure out the gender disparities and through an empirical study? And what I did for this article is really focus on the very largest deals because, in some ways, the largest deals in a lot of law firms are the deals that the partners with the largest amount of power and the largest amount of say have a hand in. And I also was cognizant of the fact that I could only crunch so much data with the methodology that I was using to gather the data. What I did was work with my research assistants to identify the top 100 announced public M&A deals focusing on targets that were U.S. reporting companies from 2014 to 2020, a universe of 700 transactions. We first searched the Bloomberg Law Deal Analytics M&A database to identify those transactions We then double-checked those transactions against Westlaw's Practical Law, What's Market, Public Merger Agreements database that they have. And within that, identified the top 100 deals in each year. Then after that, what we did is download and look at the actual acquisition agreements that were filed for those transactions. In general, securities laws require companies to file a current report on Form 8K when they enter into a significant M&A transaction. That current report on Form 8K must include the acquisition agreement and the acquisition agreement is then filed and publicly available. So then what we would do is then look at the acquisition agreement. And because I had done MA work in the past, I know that there is a provision, usually in the back, often in the miscellaneous section, the acquisition agreement that then identifies the lead lawyers on both the buy side and the sell side. And so as we built this database, we built it based on lead lawyers that were identified in the acquisition agreement itself. And often for a lot of these transactions, there's actually more than one lead lawyer identified in the acquisition agreement itself. So I'll take an example. 2019, one of the largest deals of that year, I believe it might have been the largest US deal, was the acquisition of Cellgen by Bristol-Myers, $90 billion transaction. If you look at that acquisition agreement, there are several partners from the buy side, from... Kirkland and Alice that are identified. And so I listed each of those partners when we were putting together the database. And there are a number of partners, three partners from the sell side, partners from Wachtell Lipton who were identified. Now, one of the great things about law firms is um, they also are really great at marketing. Their advisory work on these large transactions And we were then able to double-check the information that we found in the acquisition agreement against the press releases that the law firms had issued. So Kirkland had put together a press release. When they advised Bristol-Myers, that that press release identified the same partners as were named in the agreement. So I could double-check what I was finding in the actual acquisition agreement. For all of the deals that we were looking through, we would work really hard to try and double-check our data against that information. Often because these were the largest transactions of the year, in addition to the press releases from the law firms, there were often news stories on Law.com, Law360, and so forth that we could then use to double check. And then the way that we identified the partner was a man or a woman was based on looking actually at their bios on their law firm websites. So um, every single one of these large law firms has extensive websites with extensive biographies of their lawyers. We identified people as male or female based on how they self-identified in their bios. And a lot of the transactions, actually, that I was finding were also mentioned in the bios of the professionals themselves saying, you know, this person was a lead on advisory in this transaction. That's how I came up with the methodology of the data. There are obviously limitations to that methodology and the data. So I'm only capturing the largest transactions each year I'm not able to look at and get access to a large database of private company transactions. There are many women in M&A that work on a whole plethora of transactions. And if their clients are often private companies that are not reporting companies, my data doesn't address that.
0: What were some of the key findings you found from this study? A couple of key findings that I'd like
1: to focus on with respect to the study overall. One is that women's representation as a lead corporate lawyer varies from year to year, but in general remained Fairly low in my study. So, if you look at the data that I found with respect to lead counsel on the buy side, I didn't see and observe any type of linear pattern of increased or decreased representation in the seven year time period on the study. Women's representation on the buy side hovers around 10% over that period of time. One thing I did observe in the data in my study is that there's an increase in the share of women identified as lead counsel from 2014 to 2020, particularly from 2017 to 2020. And when I have spoken with lawyers that are advising an M&A in practice currently, they tell me that what I'm seeing in the data is something that they're observing on the ground, that there's essentially more diversity of partners, particularly on the sales side, over the last few years. I only see it in my data from 2017 to 2020, so I would be very curious, actually, uh, to see what this might look like five years or 10 years down the line, and whether we see more significant shifts over that period of time. The other, th- I think, key findings in my data is that you know, the large law firms, the top 20 law firms, which not surprising, account for almost half of the lead counsel named in those transactions. And for a lot of the very largest law firms that are advising in M&A, my data shows that the discrepancy is pretty significant. So for most of these firms, the vast majority of lead counsel named in transactions are men. For some of the very largest firms. Within the top 10, that disparity was pretty significant. So if I look at Davis-Polk and Wordwell, which is my former employer for disclosure purposes. They appeared in my data set in terms of the number of men about 81 times, but there were only two women that were identified as partners on the deals that they advised on during that entire time period. That is something that I observed with respect to a lot of the large law firms. The one firm where there was an equal number of men identified as lead lawyers and women as lead lawyers was Cooley Godward.
0: What could this gender gap in M&A leadership at the, the top levels, on the legal side at least, what impact could that have on the market for deal advice and for the deals themselves?
1: So I talk about that in the paper somewhat. And I think part of what I tried to do in the paper with respect to that question of why does this matter for the market for deals and deal advice is how this might impact decision-making and the decision-making process in M&A. There's a lot of literature in the legal field as well as from a host of other fields that promotes the value of diversity, particularly when a group is making very complex decisions. And M&A transactions are in some ways the most complex set of decisions to be made. And I do think that having different voices in the room might impact deal-making in ways that are positive. And there's some empirical literature that looks specifically, for example, at the issue of whether buyers overbid less in M&A transactions when you have a critical mass of women in the boardroom, or whether buyers make better M&A decisions and whether there's less overpayment when the CEO is a woman. I haven't seen in the literature, but I would be very curious about is, okay, if you have different sets of advisors in the room, whether it's women as lawyers or women as bankers, does that impact decision-making in any particular way? And perhaps for the better. The other thing that I would say is I think we should discount... The fairness and equity reasons for why we need to have diversity in the room in M and A transactions more generally. So M and A partners are often the most highly compensated partners at law firms. The law firms that advise on M and A, another known as leaders in M and A, like Wachtel Lipton, are some of the most profitable law firms in the country. And I think the equity and access argument is really important to me. I think to some extent, we don't often ask, what's the value that we have in this kind of decision-making if it's just dominated by white men? Empirically, we don't say, okay, how do we prove that this deal-making is better because deal-makers are dominated by one group? And so I think we need to think about that question and be mindful of that question as well is, Should women only have a seat at the table if they can show that they have some kind of value on the transaction? Or do we just think that they should be in there because of fairness and
0: equity reasons? Are there any steps that you identify that we could take to close this gender gap that you're seeing in these data?
1: I think there's a plethora of steps. I don't think any one of them is going to be sufficient to address the gender gap. Addressing the gender gap, as I recognize in the paper, for example, even amongst legal advisors or amongst the bankers or in the C suite, it's challenging. It's difficult because it confronts some societal problems that we have that go beyond any one institution that is involved in MA. I do think that transparency and disclosure is important here. As I say in the paper, like institutions value what they measure <laughs> and they measure what they value. For M and A deal making, the data regarding a leadership and the gender gap in leadership has been really unmeasured in many ways and undisclosed. And I think without the data goes striking people as so stark, there isn't as much of an impetus to make significant changes. If I think about a law firm, for example, and its large law firm practice, these people are they're incredibly busy. It's very easy to just turn to the person that is similar to them, that they've worked with before and so forth. And hopefully The disclosure and the data allows us a chance to step back and reflect and think a little bit more intentionally about how to address the gap. A couple of other things that I think are important, and I think this is why both women's leadership in M and A is important, and why male allyship in M and A is important, is M and A is a field that's rife with bias and rife with being known as having a certain kind of culture, somewhat more masculinity type traits and. I think that impacts the women's perceptions about being M&A lawyers. That also impacts women's perceptions about whether women are seen as the type of people to have the right traits in MA practice. And so I think the firms have used often... trainings to attack bias. There's a lot of research that sort of questions the value of having diversity trainings and whether that's enough to attack bias. I think we need to do a lot more work in terms of thinking through how do we involve leaders and mentors and mentoring programs to attack bias rather than just thinking through, you know, we put together a women's initiative and people come together and they complain as a way of attacking bias. The other thing I'd say is pressure from stakeholders has had a significant impact on the board diversity debate, and there should hopefully be a lot more stakeholder pressure. With at least with respect to disclosure, but even beyond disclosure, when it comes to the C-suite, there has recently been a little bit more focus, whether that comes from the press, or whether it comes from certain shareholders and investors on greater transparency with respect to diversity in the C-suite. and. I think there are some clients that are asking for that same set of information from their advisors, whether it's the law firms or whether it's the bankers. I think the law firms have been under a little bit more pressure than the bankers have been, but certainly that pressure is there from some large clients. Whether that pressure is there when it comes to really critical transactions and when it comes to deal making and deals is harder to tell or whether it's just the sort of general we want to make sure that our outside counsel have a diverse group of lawyers i think that remains to be seen then i think there's a lot of work that we need to do in Improving the pipeline and training future lawyers and women leaders in MA have certainly pointed to the challenges of the pipeline of women into MA practice. It's one of the causes of the leadership disparity, or at least contributing to the leadership disparity. And in the legal profession, for example, I think. Law schools have some work to do on all of this as well. So I hand-collected some data on who was teaching M&A courses at the top 50 law schools, and I focused on the top 50 ranked law schools because those are the ones that primarily feed into the large law firms that advise on M&A. And only 15 instructors out of the 101 instructors that I identified were women. And so law schools themselves have some work out of this. In fact, when it came to adjunct faculty, the vast majority of the adjunct faculty were men. And so hopefully, just even looking at this might make us think a little bit about who do we bring into the classroom? Who are we presenting as models for our students? And I think if you go beyond adjunct faculty and you look at you know, permanent faculty at the elite schools, and I use in the paper, the example of Harvard Law School and Columbia Law School, partly because they're identified as the sort of leading feeders into elite law firms kind of more generally, including a lot of the ones that identify as the elite firms in M&A. So at Harvard Law School, one woman is listed out of 11 faculty members who are identified as being within the corporate law faculty. At Columbia, women make up four of the 21 faculty members that are identified as having expertise in the corporate law curriculum. When I think about the work to address the gender gap having to be multidimensional, I think there's a role to play for us too in legal academia as well. The numbers are fairly similar when I've done some of the research on the top business schools. So I think there's a lot of work to be done at the business schools as well.
0: What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from your paper?
1: We have known about the problem of the gender gap in leadership in the professions for a long time. Articles that I have been looking at for purposes of research for this paper are 25 years old, back from when I was in law school. I think we need to think about solutions that are concrete solutions for addressing this. I think we need to be a lot more careful of transparency and disclosure. And I hope this is the beginning of a set of projects whether I do them or whether other scholars do them, of looking more deeply into specific fields and really digging down and trying to address different practice groups and different fields rather than just thinking always about sort of broad aggregate types of solutions. I mean, part of what I hope is that this helps inspire people to think about other studies that are similar looking at specific practice groups. So whether that's securities lawyers and who's advising on IPOs, whether it's information about the bankers and the banker side. So I don't have a huge amount of data in my paper about the bankers. I didn't have the financial resources to get the merger market tear sheets that list the list of the bankers and the advisors on the banking side. But I think that work can easily be done and we can really try and determine what disparities look like in leadership on that as well. So I think of this in some ways as the second of my projects on gender disparities in M&A and I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done on this and also on the issue of racial disparity on M&A because I think that racial disparity in transactional practice is a... uh, really important issue, one that has been underexplored, and one that is
0: very pressing. Our guest today has been Afra Afsharapur, professor of law at the University of California, Davis. We've discussed her article, Women in M&A, which is forthcoming in the UC Irvine Law Review. I'll a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Afra, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Andrew.